we're going to be in Luke chapter 18. Some of you still making your way there. Let me just tell you the big idea of our text today. Big idea of Luke chapter 18, this particular section, is a contrast between self-exalting pride and a God-exalting humility. And here in our text, uh, we're going to see three examples of this. We're going to see one example by way of a, of a parable that Jesus tells, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And then we're going to see two other examples by encounters that Jesus has. And each one of these examples is going to illustrate Jesus' main point, which we'll be reading in the text, but it's there in verse 14. And this main point and this main thing that Jesus says is this, everyone who exalts himself is going to be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And, you know, as we're getting into this and get into into this subject, you know, about self-exaltation and all, I'm reminded actually of a Mac Davis song and the chorus goes this way. Maybe you've heard it. Uh, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. I can't wait to look in the mirror. I get better looking each day. To know me is to love me because I'm one heck of a man. Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble, but I'm doing the best that I can. Sing it with me right now. How many of you, you know somebody, maybe you're afraid to raise your hand. How many of you know somebody, this could be their theme song, right? Oh, yeah, it's hard to be humble, but I'm doing the best that I can. Well, let me introduce you to one other person. It's here in Luke chapter 18. I guess it would help if I turned there. Luke 18, we pick it up in verse 9. We're going to meet a poster child for this song. Uh, Jesus here, he's speaking this parable. Uh, It says also, Jesus spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they despised others. There's a proud combination. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, and the other a tax collector. Jesus takes two people from the opposite end of the social spectrum here. He takes the Pharisee, who's the religious leader, the one who would be the pillar in the community and typically self-righteous and puffed up, and then he contrasts him with this tax collector. Tax collector, the bottom rung of society, despised by everybody, synonymous with, you know, just a a dirt bag in this culture. (laughs) Some things never change in terms of perception. Uh, And so he says, uh, you got this Pharisee, you got this tax collector. Verse 11, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. And in, the, and in the Greek, this is continual. I thank you that I am continually not like other men, ex, uh, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this dirtbag tax collector, dirtbag my adding to it, he says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And Jesus now gives the contrast. He says, and the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other for everyone who exalts himself, here's our text, will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, if you're with us last week, you know that Jesus gave a parable there, uh, and the exhortation was that uh, men should pray without losing heart. And here in his, his parable, he's talking about how we should pray with the right heart. 
how we should approach God with the right heart. And the first thing to notice, if you're taking notes, you can write it down. I want you to notice the focus of this Pharisee's prayer. Notice his focus. We see it in verse 11. Jesus uses a personal pronoun to describe him, saying that the Pharisee prayed with himself, right? His focus was on himself entirely. His focus wasn't on God. And we see this just come through loud and clear in his two-sentence prayer. Five times in two-sentence prayer, he uses the word I. He says, I thank you that I am not like other men. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. It's all about him. And let me just say, this is not how Jesus taught his disciples to pray. We saw this back in Luke chapter 11. His disciples come to him. They said, Lord, teach us how to pray. And what did Jesus say there? He said, hey, listen, the the focus essentially is entirely upon God. The whole prayer is structured on God. Jesus said, when you pray, say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Now, I want you to think about that. The attitude, the idea, thy name, thy kingdom, thy will. This is the whole structure of how prayer is supposed to be. And when you pray like this, when you approach God with a Godward orientation, that you come to the holy, righteous, pure God, and in prayer, your attitude is, it's not my will be done, it's thy will be done. It's your kingdom, it's your righteousness, it's trusting in you, it's casting all of my cares upon you, knowing that you care for me. And when you pray like that, when your attitude is to approach God, not my kingdom, but your kingdom, it radically changes and transforms how you see God and it radically transforms and changes how you see yourself. Now, we got a great example of this back in Luke chapter 5. And what happens there is that Peter has an encounter with Jesus. Now, it's not a classic story of prayer, per se, in the fact that Peter had the enjoyment of having a face-to-face conversation with Jesus. But it's still this Godward orientation when you're talking to God himself. This is what comes through in the story. What happens? Jesus comes up to Peter, says, hey, Peter, gets in his boat, put out a little bit from the shore. He gets in his boat just the way he gets into our boat, right? He calls Peter to to a a step of faith. I want you to put out a little bit. He's preaching the gospel from Peter's boat. He's got Peter as a captive audience. And he finishes the message and he turns to Peter and he says, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Peter now has has a contrast between what seems natural, logical, normal to him and what God is asking him to do. Because what God is asking him to do, which so often happens when we encounter God, he asks of us some sort of step of faith that seems counterintuitive to the information that we have. And Peter, the information he has is, hey, listen, we're a commercial fisherman. You know, this is what we do. We fish here in the Sea of Galilee. And Peter could have told Jesus, look, here's how it works, carpenter. Uh, We fish at night. We don't fish during the daytime. Sun is up. It's daytime. We fish in the shallow water. You're calling us to fish in the deep water. Carpenter, we don't do it that way. And and Peter kind of puts up a, a weak sort of resistance. He's like, master, we worked all night. We didn't catch anything. And, and the carpenter, Jesus, could have said, yeah, I know I'm a carpenter, but you're not a very good fisherman. Just trust me and do what I told you to do. But no, Jesus says, hey, do it. And, and uh, Peter says, okay, nevertheless, at your word, I'm going to let down 
the, the net, he lets down a net singular. Jesus had asked him to let down his nets plural. I don't know that we can make a big case for that, but it just seems to me that Peter said, well, I'm doubtful, but okay, I'll, do, I'll let down one net. Okay, there, there we go. I'm obeying you, but it's kind of half-hearted. He does it. You guys remember the story, what happens? Fills a boat up with fish, so much so they got to signal their partners in the other boat. They come out, they fill both boats so full that they begin to sink. And at this point, you know, as a fisherman and being a guy who works, you know, on, on boats your whole life, your boat is sinking, man, it's all hands on deck. We're focusing on the matter at hand. We've got to keep these boats afloat. No, Peter drops to his knees at that point, and he says to Jesus, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. And what happens? When you see God, you see yourself. When you come to God in prayer, thy name, thy kingdom, thy will changes radically your whole dynamic. And so Peter, he sees Jesus in his glory. He sees him in his sinful state. That's a healthy place to be. That is the powerful dynamic when we come to God. Hey, Lord, look, it's your name, it's your kingdom, it's your will dramatically changing your perspective. And this is how our prayers are supposed to be, but let's be honest. Oftentimes, like this Pharisee, our prayers can get to a place where it's really not about your will, God. It's about my will. Where it's really not about me saying, God, how good you are and being encountering you in that way and realizing how sinful and how desperate of a state I'm in. Sometimes we want to just sort of, you know, give God the update about how righteous we are. Sounds horrible to say it out loud, but sometimes we can be like that in prayer. I love what C. Marvin Pate says in his commentary. i put it on the screen for you. He says, it is entirely possible to address your words to God, but actually to be praying to yourself. Because your focus is on yourself, not on God. Your passion is for your agenda, not God's agenda. Your attitude is, my will be done, not thy will be done. Who's convicted right now, right? He says, this Pharisee was full of praise, but he rejoiced not for who God is, but rather for who he was. Yikes. So he went up to the temple to pray, but really he spoke with himself. He's praying to himself. Second thing I want you to note, and you can jot this down, I want you to note the attitude of this Pharisee's prayer. I want you to note his attitude. Not only is it self-focused, not only is he self-righteous, not only is he self-exalting, he is all those things, but I want you to notice how he relates then to other people. He's scornful of the others around him. I thank you that I'm not like other men. And I certainly thank you that I'm not like this dirtbag tax collector over here. Right? He's scornful of others. It's been said this. It's been said that the connection between those who self-righteously trust in themselves and those who despise others is almost inevitable. Why is that? Because it's human nature. It's human nature. Let me illustrate it with a couple, a couple of silly illustrations. But Let's say that you are totally into fitness. You are all about diet and exercise, and you have gone the extra mile. You, you know, have 2% body fat or whatever, and you are just totally into it. What happens is you become, you know, self-focused, and you, you begin <coughs> to relate scornfully with other people. You're sitting down, you go, you plop yourself down, you got your plate of kale, you know, and, and there you are. And, uh, and, and some guy saddles up next to you with a bag of Cheetos, and you're just like, oh, yeah. 
You know, there you go. Check it out. You know, and you begin to, to re- become this self-righteous, and not just self-righteous, but you begin to despise those people that aren't like you. I'll give you another example. Let's say that you're all about, you know, medical checkups for your kids, and you're very diligent to make their doctor's appointment and to get all their rounds of shots and all of this stuff, and then you encounter somebody who's an anti-vaxxer, and they say, oh, no, you know, vaccines are from the devil, and they cause all the illnesses and all the problems. I'm not going to vaccinate my kids. And you're like, great. Hey, I got two words for you, herd immunity. Google it, you know, and you get all proudful, and then you start looking in, in, in a despising way of relating to others. This is, is what happens when we become you know, self-focused and puff ourselves up in this way. And the same thing, just as as self-righteousness becomes a slippery slope to being scornful of others, the same thing happens when we are self-righteous spiritually. When we are self-righteous spiritually, it's often that slippery slope where we perceive ourselves to be more spiritual than the people around us. But this Pharisee, he's got a huge problem. Here's his problem. Not only is he not more spiritual than other men, not only is he not more spiritual than this tax collector, he's actually less spiritual, and this is what Jesus says. Why? Because he's deluded. He's deluded. He's deluded about himself, he's deluded about prayer, and he's deluded about this tax collector who he's despising. And it all starts with his perceived righteousness. What's he say? He says, I'm not like other men. And in in the original language, he's saying, I'm continually not like other men, right? He's saying, look, I, I don't rip people off. I'm faithful to my wife. I don't engage in sin. I fast twice a week. I tithe regularly. Check me out. I'm awesome. Now, in all likelihood, I will concede he probably Uh, you know, a lot of what he prayed probably was true. He probably was a faithful tither. Uh, He probably did fast, you know, twice a week. But listen, our righteousness, guys, and this is the get, our righteousness doesn't depend on what we do or what we don't do. That's not what our righteousness depends upon. Isaiah the prophet said this. He says, we are all infected and impure with sin. And in the Hebrew, that word all means all. All means all. That's all all means, okay? All, everybody. He says, we're all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they're nothing but filthy rags. It's very disgusting in the original language when you, when you dig into what he's talking about there, but basically the idea is anything that you do in and of your own power, in and of your own self, to say, oh God, look how righteous I am. Look at this righteous thing that I did. God says, that's disgusting in my sight. Isaiah continues, he says, like autumn leaves, we wither and fall and our sins sweep us away like the wind. We all need cleansing from sin, no matter how awesome we think we are. Isaiah goes on to say this, he says, all, again, all means all, all all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, in case you didn't get the memo what all means, we've turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. The writer of Hebrews, I think it's the Apostle Paul, but we won't debate that. The writer of Hebrews says this, Therefore, it was necessary for him, for Jesus, to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, in other words, human, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. 
then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Why? Because he's holy, he's righteous, he's pure, and there ain't a single one on the earth who is holy and righteous and pure. It's not what you do, it's not what you don't do. It all comes down to what Jesus Christ did. That's what it all comes down to. But listen, this Pharisee is deluded about all of that. He's deluded about prayer. He's deluded about himself. He's deluded about this tax collector. Notice what Jesus says about this tax collector. Again, there in verse 13, he says, the tax collector standing afar off, he's, he, can, he won't even draw close, he stands afar off, <coughs> he would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven. Why? Because he's profoundly impacted by his sin. He's profoundly impacted by the fact that, that, that man, he is not righteous. He, he, has no, he has no earned standing to go before God. He recognizes, I am coming before God as a filthy sinner. And, it's, and Jesus said, he wouldn't raise his eyes up to heaven, but he beat his breast. And in the original language, this means he beat his breast continually. And, and what does he say? He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You see, here the issue is this Pharisee thought that he was not like other men in that he thought he was better than them. And in a similar way, this tax collector also thought that he was not like other men. He thought that he was worse than them. So this guy thinks he's better than them. This guy thinks he's worse than them. But listen, God sees them both the same. And the way that God sees them is that they are both sinners who need to repent. That's the way God sees everyone. That's the way God sees you today. You're not a prize to be won. You are a sinner by nature and by choice. So am I. And so God sees us as people who need to repent and to seek his mercy, and only the tax collector does that. He's the only one who does that. Verse 13, notice, he cries out for mercy. And the Greek word translated merciful there in verse 13, it means an atoning sacrifice. In other words, uh, in, in kind of an expanded way, let me just tell you what was at the heart of what this guy cried out to the Lord. This tax collector said, God, be merciful to me through your atoning sacrifice for sins because I'm a sinner. This is the attitude. This is the idea. And let me tell you, the only other place that that Greek word merciful is used is in Hebrews 2.17, the verse we just read. That, that says this, therefore it was necessary for Jesus to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be, here it is, our merciful and faithful high priest before God, then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. The Pharisee relies on his own works, but the tax collector, he's relying on the mercy and on the compassion of God. And so he comes uh, in, in a humble way, humbles himself, comes to Jesus with no excuses, with no recitation of, of his self-righteous acts. Hey, no, you know, no, hey, here's my resume. Check out how great I am kind of thing. Doesn't come like that at all. He just comes with an honest plea for mercy. Some of you are going to need to do that today. Some of you today, perhaps you need to come to God with an honest plea for mercy. Listen, David Guzik says this, and I love this because he's really getting to the heart of what's communicated here in the Greek. He says, the justification of the tax collector was immediate. Uh, He humbly came to God on the basis of God's atoning sacrifice, and this guy was justified, immediately justified. That's what the Greek tells us in this parable that Jesus tells us. 
<clears throat> he was immediately, uh, um, only came to God on the basis of his atoning sacrifice, and he was justified. He didn't earn his justification, and he didn't have a probationary period. He was simply justified. And listen, that needs to happen. Have you been justified? Today, before we close, as we close, I'm going to give you an invitation. And maybe you have been in a place where either you're feeling like, man, I'm worse than all the sinners, and, and I, I just, man, I, I, don't, I don't even know that I can come to God. Or maybe you're on the extreme other end where, you're, where you've been thinking, well, you know, gosh, I'm, I'm a decent person. Man, I'm, I'm better than my neighbors. I'm better than, than certainly than, you know, the losers I see in the world, you know, Charles Manson or whoever. I'm, I'm no Chuck Manson. So, I, you know, I'm, I think, like, I'm, I'm all right, you know. Good people go to heaven. No, good people don't go to heaven. The only people that go to heaven are saved people. People that God has been merciful to, and he's, and he's merciful based on the crying that says, Lord, uh, I'm not worthy of it. The only one that's worthy of it is Jesus, who is the atoning sacrifice for my sin. The Bible says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. The Bible says that if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the, the risen Savior, if you believe that God died, and, and you confess with your mouth that God rose again from the dead, the Bible says that you will be saved. I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that today. And so Jesus concludes the story there in verse 14. I tell you, this man, this tax collector, cried out for the atonement for, uh, of his sins. He went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now Jesus has an encounter continuing this message, this story, this picture of a contrast between self-exalting pride and God-exalting humility. We read in verse 15, it says, Then they also brought infants to him that he might touch them, but when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. So the parents are bringing the, these infants to the Lord, these young children to the Lord, and he's at, they're asking, Lord, we want you to bless our kids and, and, and all and the disciples are like, hey, this guy's important. He's got a lot of stuff to do. What are you doing taking up his time, bringing your, bringing your babies here kind of thing? But Jesus, verse 16, he called these children to himself. <coughs> and he said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them. For of such is the kingdom of God. And listen, then he adds this, and this is the get for us, continuing his lesson. He says, assuredly, I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. Jesus is using this encounter with these children as an example to all of his disciples and to us, continuing this contrast between self-exalting pride and God-exalting humility. And, and just as, you know, you see the, the Pharisee who came to Jesus in prideful exaltation, of his own works, he comes before the throne of God, pridefully exalting his own work. He stands up, the attitude, the idea is, hey everybody, check me out. Listen how righteous I am. Praise to himself. And now in contrast to that, you've got these children who come to Jesus and they're just humbly dependent upon him. And that's how we, Jesus says, are to receive the kingdom of God. And that word receive, it means literally to accept. It means to take with the hand. I want you to think about your kids, man. What do they want to do? They, 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 they want you. They want, I mean, especially when you try and drop them off at the children's ministry, man. They're just like, oh, no, you know. They want you. They, they want to take you by the hand. 
I remember years ago when Megan, my oldest, who's married with four kids now, but at the time, uh, she, she's just a little girl, a little, you know, toddler. And, and one night we went to bed, set the alarm at the house, and, uh, you know, we had two different types of, of alarms that would go off. If it was uh, outside and there was motion or whatever, it would kind of beep. But if there was something inside that set off a motion detector, the whole alarm would go off, you know, just ear-piercing, you know, alarm blaring in the house. Well, we're all of a sudden, 2 o'clock in the morning, we wake up, the house is shaking, it's just this alarm intruder, there's an intruder in the house. So I grab my shotgun, there's, it's, un, it's not loaded, but I just rack it, because that's the universal symbol of get out of my house, you know. And so rack this shotgun, empty shotgun, I throw open the door and I yell, who's there, who's out there, you know. It was Megan, she had gotten out of bed. She'd crawled out of her crib, somehow got out of her, because she'd never gotten out of her crib before, somehow got out. And she screamed a scream, poor little thing. I mean, you can imagine just how terrified she already was. This alarm, it's black, and just pitch black, and it goes off. And then all of a sudden, I throw the door open, and I'm screaming, who's out there? And she screamed, and she's sobbing. And at the same time, she runs right into my arms, the source of the thing that had freaked her out. But she's like, I, I got to take by the hand. And she's just holding on to me, shaking like a little leaf. I'm like, oh, my gosh, don't call Child Protective Services. She's all grown. But, <laughs> but Jesus says that's how we're supposed to receive the kingdom of God, to take by the hand, to accept. I just hit the pause button here, by the way, and just, just make the, the observation, not in the, the big idea of the text, but, hey, Parents, they brought their kids to Jesus. Man, we got to bring our kids to Jesus, you know? And it's, an, and it's not just a Sunday, you know, slow to 20, let you tuck and roll at the children's ministry, kind of. we got to bring our kids to Jesus. And, and it's got to look like, hey, I'm taking, because I mean, what, what happens? You know, you go from diapers and bottles and, and breastfeeding and, and sleep deprivation to becoming a chauffeur who's driving your kid everywhere, you know? And, and, and what happens? you got to go, well, where... You know, when I take them over to their friend's house, am I taking them to Jesus or am I taking them far away from Jesus? You know, what kind of people are they with? You know, when I, t- when I take them over to, you know, this place or that place or, you know, when I'm getting them involved in sports and it's like, oh, now it's Sunday and I'm going to take you to, you know, your soccer thing because, you know, you're going to get the soccer scholarship because you've got to beat out all those people at USC now who are getting paying their way in. So you've got to have a leg up to, you know. Whatever it is, but no, you got to constantly say, am I bringing my kids to Jesus or am I bringing my kids far away from Jesus? So they brought their children uh, to Jesus. Verse 18, we continue his second encounter now. It says, now a certain ruler asked him, saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? He says, no one is good but one, and that is God. Uh, And then he continues, he says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And this guy says, all those I've kept from my youth. Now, how many of you believe that? How many of you believe he's kept all? No, he hasn't kept all, but he's like, hey, I'm... I'm an A student, man. All those I've kept from my youth. And so when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. 
But when, verse 23, he heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful, he said, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, who then can be saved? Man, that's a, that's a tough bar to cross there. And he said, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. And then Peter said, see, we have left all and followed you. And so he said to them, assuredly, I say to you, he's speaking now to his disciples who've left all to follow him. He says, there's no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who shall not receive many more in this present time and in the age to come eternal life. So let's unpack this. Notice the question that this guy has. This is now the second encounter that Jesus has had. One parable, one encounter with the infants, and now this second encounter with this rich young ruler. And notice his question for Jesus. He says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? His focus again is on himself. Right? And again, this is the, 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 the big idea being reintroduced through this third example. It's a contrast between self-exalting pride and God-exalting humility. Jesus, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, he starts off, he says, why do you call me good? No one is good, right? But one, and that is God. He's, he's, he's given this guy a major clue right now. Jesus is telling this guy, hey, buddy, I'm God, okay? You call me good, you should pay attention to what the words you're speaking mean because, because there's, there's none that's good. Bible makes it clear, there, there ain't nobody good. The only one that's good is God. So Jesus says, look, you called me good, there ain't no one good but God. You should get the memo that you are now talking to the Messiah. You should get the memo that you're talking to the Savior, Listen, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one who takes away the sins of the world. I'm the only one through whom you can inherit eternal life. You're asking how you can inherit eternal life. You're talking to the one that can get you there. But he missed it. He doesn't see it. And so Jesus continues, basically, the attitude, the idea is, fine, you're not going to recognize I'm Messiah. You want to know how you can, you can gain eternal life? He tells him, you know the commandments. Keep those. You, you, you want to earn your right way in, into heaven? That means you keep all of the commandments. And so Jesus here, he's talking about the Ten Commandments, right? And <clears throat> he says, you want to know how you can earn it? You keep the commandments. And, and now it's interesting when Jesus is talking to this guy, Jesus only asks him about the fifth through the ninth commandments. Notice again there in verse 20, what does Jesus say to this guy? He says, you know the commandments, Do not commit adultery, seventh commandment. Do not murder, sixth commandment. Do not steal, eighth commandment. He says, do not bear false witness, ninth commandment. Honor your father and mother, the fifth commandment, right? This is is what he he focuses on. And, and, you know, he's, (coughs) he's just dialing into these things. And then what's he do? He's de- the, the fifth through the 10th the commandment actually deal with our relationship with men. He, he, he doesn't take exception. He just accepts at face value. Fine, you want to say you keep all of, you've kept all of them. For argument's sake, I'm not going to grill you right now about how you absolutely are lying through your teeth. You just lied, right? You just broke that commandment because you just bore false witness, said you've kept them from your youth. 
Jesus doesn't touch any of that. What's he do? He puts his finger on this guy's issue. What's this guy's issue? Violation of the 10th commandment. He's a coveter. He's a coveter. How do we know that? He says in verse 20, well, verse 22, he says, you lack one thing, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor. You're going to have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And verse 23 shows us his covetous heart. It says, when he heard this, he became very sorrowful for he was rich. Let me say, this is the only time in Scripture where somebody actually comes to Jesus and leaves in worse condition than when they actually came. He comes to Jesus, doesn't recognize that he's the Messiah, and when Jesus puts his finger on, you know, one of his major issues in his life, that, he, that he's a coveter, that, that he, he, just, he just can't let go of that, right? He couldn't let go of his stuff. Now, this next illustration, it may or may not be true. I have no idea of knowing it's true. Reads in the telling of it like it, it's a true story. Who knows if it is? But it is said that when, when hunters are hunting monkeys uh, in the jungle, what they do is that they will take a box and they will fasten it to the ground and they'll put fruit inside the box and then they make the opening just big enough for the monkey to get his hand in to grab the fruit. But when he closes his hand around the fruit, he now cannot pull his hand out of the box. And he's so fixated on having that fruit, they won't let go of that thing. They just stubbornly hold on to it. And so when the hunter is approaching them, they're losing their mind trying to get away from this box that's connected to the ground when all they got to do is let go of this, of this fruit that they're trying to grasp. And before you know it, they're captured. This guy could not let go of his stuff. And it brings to mind what Jesus said in Matthew's gospel, that what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or, Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Listen, it's not a sin to have money. It's not a sin to have stuff. It's a sin when your money and your stuff has you. That's when it becomes a sin. And so that's why Jesus demands of this guy... You still lack one thing. You got to sell all your stuff, man. You got to give it to the poor. You need to come follow me. Now, one of the commentators brilliantly says, we make two mistakes as we read this. The first mistake as we read this is we can, we can believe, wow, this applies to everybody. That everybody needs to sell all their stuff, give it all to the poor and, and all. Jesus is not saying, this is not a prescription for the world at large. But this commentator also makes the observation that the second mistake we make is not, you know, first mistake, this applies to everybody. Second mistake, this applies to nobody. Because maybe for you today, the Lord's speaking to you, and this applies to you. I, I grew up in a home, my parents knew what it was to have money and not to have money. When, you know, when I, when I was first born, they lived in La Jolla and had lots of money. And, uh, and later on, they, they, they lost everything, and, and, and I grew up in my formative years with, with my folks not having money. It was, it was, it was they were poor. It was, it was a difficult time. And, and so the, the, the experience for me, it left me with this scarcity mentality to where it was like when I, when I had stuff, I, I, I had trouble letting go of it because I had grown through in formative years and not having stuff, so I kind of perceived security was in stuff, and what God had to do in my life was, was speak to me, hey, 
first revealing, you got an issue here with this. And, and then he revealed to me the path of getting away from that scarcity mentality. And it was really just, just be generous. Give your stuff away. A, a powerful lesson that happens. And so Jesus addresses this guy's 10th commandment issue. You got a coveting issue. But notice also he says to him, you need to come follow me. You need to come follow me. See, this man's problems, they go far beyond the 5th through the 10th commandment. See, his issue is he's a violator of all the commandments. And, and when Jesus puts his finger on covetousness, he's not conceding that this guy has kept all the other commandments. He's just putting his finger on this guy's most obvious sin, that he is a coveter, right? But the issue is, even if he had only violated that commandment of, of not coveting, Man, he still needs the atonement that only Jesus can give. If you've broken the law in one point, you've broken them all. Sin separates you from God. Bottom line, and all have sinned. I don't care how many of the Ten Commandments you keep. And, and you know, you've heard me say it a lot of times. People will tell me, oh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a good person. I'm going to heaven. How? Well, I keep the Ten Commandments. And my frequent response is, baloney, you don't even know the Ten Commandments. How can you keep them? You know? And, and so, so the, the issue here, look, if you will follow Jesus, if you'll surrender your life to Jesus, even though you are a lawbreaker, he is the one that makes you righteous because he's atoned for the fact that you are a lawbreaker. Right? By the way, I told Second Service this, I'll tell you this, the Ten Commandments, man, Easy way to know them, right? Easy, cheesy Ten Commandments. Let me just teach them to you, all right? First commandment, one God, okay? That's first commandment. Second commandment, cut out idols, not have any idols in your life. Third commandment, watch your words, right? Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Fourth commandment, how many wheels do you have on your car? Four, what do you drive to church? Your car? Fourth commandment is, right, that, that, that you... That you Follow the Lord, right? That you, that, that, that you, you will you, you'll come uh, to the Lord. You'll keep the Sabbath day, all right? Fifth commandment, you honor your father and your mother. Sixth commandment, don't kill me, don't kill me, you don't murder, right? Seventh commandment, these two, stay away from these people over here. You don't commit adultery, right? Eighth commandment, what happens? What happens in some countries when you steal? They cut your finger off, right? This guy's a two-time loser. Eighth commandment, don't steal. Ninth commandment, these guys are all standing. This guy is lying. Don't lie. Don't bear false witness. Tenth commandment, I want. Gimme, gimme, gimme. No, don't covet. Tenth commandment, don't covet. Okay? That's the Ten Commandments, right? Praise the Lord. Thank you, children's ministry. Okay? Here's the deal. We're all sinners by nature and by choice. I don't care if you even know the Ten Commandments. I mean, do. You should. These are what we should aspire to in obedience to the Lord, but you will never keep them. You'll never be able to come to the Lord and say, hey, you know, what, what do I lack? What, don't, what, what commandment aren't I keeping? Because God could tell you, you know, you know, given on the day, pretty much all of them, right? You look at a woman lustfully in your heart, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. You know, you're angry with your brother, you've got unforgiveness in your heart, you've, you've committed murder in your heart. Jesus said that. So, so given the day, I mean, we are, we are lawbreakers. I like what David Guzik said about this rich young ruler. He said, one might say that this man had climbed to the top of the ladder of success only to find his ladder leaned against the wrong building. What's your ladder leaning against? 
Because that's the thing, man. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who takes away sin. It is the Lord who atones for our sin. It is the Lord who makes us righteous. Again, the prophet Isaiah, he said, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Look, I am placing a foundation stone in Jerusalem, a firm and tested stone. It is a precious cornerstone that's safe to build on. He's talking about Jesus Christ. Whoever believes need never be shaken. Let me close. Have you turned back to the left to Luke chapter 6? Right there at the end of Luke chapter 6, I want to share with you Jesus' words. We're going to close right here. Jesus says this. Luke chapter 6, verse 46 through 49. Why do you call me Lord? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? He said, whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I'll show you whom he's like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. Be clear what he's talking about. Faith in Jesus Christ. Casting all my cares upon him because he cares for me. Crying out to him for his righteous atonement. He's the only one who can cleanse you of your sin. He's the only one who can, who can make you right with God, who you can build a life upon that will last and that will not burn up. And when, he says, the flood arose. Notice he says when the flood arose. It ain't a matter of if the flood is coming in your life. It's not a matter of if the storm is coming in your life. It's a matter of when. It will hit. And when, he said, the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against that house, and it could not shake it. Why? Because it was founded on the rock. But, he says, he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation and against which the stream beat vehemently and immediately it fell and the ruin of the house was great. Got to build our lives upon Jesus Christ. We have to trust him. He is the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father except through him. The big idea of our message, the contrast between self-exalting pride and God-exalting humility, and we all have to figure out which camp we're in.